So our, our lectionary reading today kind of takes us away from the writings of the Apostle Paul and back into the Gospels, and specifically to the chapters that start bringing the Gospel of Matthew to a close. And the scene that we're going to be looking at today takes place during Jesus' final week, and it's kind of sandwiched in between the story of the triumphal entry and the night of Jesus' Last Supper. And it really is kind of a, a point of heightened conflict with our Lord. And if, if you, you know, kind of read uh, through this section, the two chapters leading up to today's reading are full of accounts of conflict between Jesus and the Jewish religious leaders. And those, those skirmishes continued through Jesus' triumphal entry on Palm Sunday and then accelerate very quickly to his act of cleansing the temple. An act that sparked a whole new battle with the establishment and one that he didn't shy away from. Because, you know, he didn't just cleanse the temple and then hang up his broom. He hung out his shingle and started teaching right there, right, right in with sight and earshot of the people who would ultimately seek to take his life. And so we're going to be looking today at the Gospel of Matthew, uh, chapter 23, beginning in verse 1. So hear now the words of the true and living God. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees are the official interpreters of the law of Moses. So practice and obey whatever they tell you, but don't follow their example. For they don't practice what they teach. They crush people with impossible religious demands and never lift a finger to ease the burden. Everything they do is for show. On their arms they wear extra-large prayer boxes with scriptures inside, and, and they wear robes with extra-long tassels. And they love to sit at the head tables at banquets and in the seats of honor in the synagogue. And they love to receive respectful greetings as they walk in the marketplace and to be called rabbi. Don't let anyone call you rabbi, for you have only one teacher, and all of you are equal as brothers and sisters. And don't address anyone here on earth as father, for you have only God in heaven as your father. And don't let anyone call you teacher, for you have only one teacher, the Messiah. The greatest among you must be a servant, and those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Kind of an odd text for do, do Pastor Appreciation Sunday, huh? Maybe I should have thought a little bit more about that. But, but you know, our, our Lord wasn't shy, was he? You know, especially when you remember the setting for the Lord's confrontation with the religious leaders was the, taking place in the most public part of the temple. And, and, you know, and since it was a busy public location, it was ideal for Jesus to preach and to teach there. But you have to remember that the, the Sanhedrin, the, the Jewish Supreme Court, met in a hall nearby, a place called the Hall of Hewn Stones. And it was built into the northern wall of the temple within earshot of the Lord's voice as he called these leaders out on their corruption and on their hypocrisy. So, not unexpectedly, the Pharisees really didn't want to hear anything that Jesus had to say. And they were determined to undermine his preaching and his teaching any way they could. And, you know, they thought, well, well hey, anyway, what, what's he mean by criticizing us? Well, these are some of the most religious and devout people on the planet. They were devout in their study of the Torah. They knew those 613 commandments. They facilitated the, the operation of the temple and the work of the priests. And when our Lord spoke against them, they weren't just offended, they were furious. 
And you know, religious people, and specifically religious leaders, are always profoundly disturbed if anyone points out that they are not and never have been true children of God. That's why our Lord said to the Jewish leaders in today's text, he said, they crush people with impossible religious demands and never lift a finger to ease the burden. And that crushing happened in Jesus' day. That kind of crushing happened in Paul's day. It happened during the Reformation, and it's still happening today. You know, I had uh, a really great opportunity last Monday to attend the 500th anniversary of uh, the Reformation conference that was put on by Ligonier Ministries at St. Andrew's Chapel in Sanford. And if you've never been there, you've got to go sometime in your life. And just to give you an idea of what it was like, I told Vicki it was like the Super Bowl for Reformed theology nerds. Okay? <laughs> yeah. Right. And the speakers there, though, were some of the brightest minds in Christendom, right? There was, there was guys like Sinclair Ferguson and Stephen Nichols and Burke Parsons and, of course, R.C. Sproul, which I'm sure many of you know. And at the end of the evening, all the guest speakers kind of gathered on stage for a question and answer session. And one of the questions that was asked of the panel was, what do you see as the greatest threat to Christianity in this century? What do you see as the greatest threat to Christianity in this century. And almost before the question was finished being asked, uh, it was actually Dr. Ferguson that answered, uh, he said Christianity in this century. That was his answer. He said Christianity in this century is what's wrong with the church. He said it's a greater threat than Islam because Islam can never destroy the gospel. But Christianity can destroy the gospel and is destroying the gospel. You see, we do it to ourselves. And we do it in the same way that those Pharisees did. You know, they had the very oracles of God right in their hands, but they manipulated them. And they used them for their own purposes. And they used them to crush people and to obscure the word of God with so many extra rites and rituals that they lost what was right in front of them. The very word of God. You know, that happened in Martin Luther's day too. Believe it or not, Martin Luther had never even seen a Bible until the first year of his novitiate when he was becoming a monk. And he was lent one for a year. Now, can you picture a monk who had never seen a Bible? And that just really lets you know that ordinary men and women of his time knew absolutely nothing of the Scriptures except for what their church leaders taught them. And, you know, even having borrowed this Bible, he still really didn't understand the difference between man-made doctrine and gospel truth. You know, he, he kept kind of a diary, and he wrote that when he was inside the monastery, he would wear himself out in the pursuit of redemption through good works and through trying to become righteous through the, the rituals and the offices of the church. And you know what? He was pretty hard on himself. Like, for instance, he, he says to, uh, to earn salvation and impress God that he would beat himself with straps. He would stand outside for hours in the cold, and he went to confession continually, so much so that he actually wore out all the confessors in the monastery until eventually no one wanted to hear his confession anymore. And in fact, his last confessor at the monastery, upon being woken up at midnight so that Luther could make just one more confession before that day was over, said, Brother Martin, would you please just go back to bed? Whatever, whatever it is, your sin will keep till morning. 
But now, thankfully, though, that for Luther, he was just as brilliant and dedicated to his education as he was uh, to making confessions. And because of that, he rose very quickly up through the academic ranks, even though as a leader, he was completely empty on the inside. And he felt totally lost. Until one day, he makes this shocking confession to himself. And these, these are his own words, and this is shocking. He said, you know, every day, the priests here at the monastery are always preaching, love God, love God, love God. He said, I, I don't love God. I hate him. He said, I don't love God. I hate him. Because no matter what I do or how hard I try, it's never enough. It's never enough. I never feel like I've earned salvation, and I can't take it anymore. And he all but collapsed in despair. But you know, now that he had finally come to the end of himself and his own efforts, that's when he made the first right decision of his life. And he prayed directly to God, not to the virgin, not by the mediation of any saints. He prayed directly to God and he said, Sovereign Lord, I will do anything, anything to find you. Help me. And you know, that's the spirit that we need in the church. The 21st century church needs to, to brush aside our desire for entertainment and for novelty and for cultural relevance because, brothers and sisters, truth is always relevant. We need to ensure that our churches and our homes and, most importantly, our hearts are soaked in Scripture. And we need to look beyond the gurus and, and pundits of our society and look to the only one who can really help us, and that is our Lord Jesus Christ. And not our own to gain righteousness that are done in many cases just so other people can see them. That's why Jesus said of the leaders of his day, he said, everything they do is for show. So in other words, what was on the outside didn't match what was on the inside. And, you know, that became very clear to Martin Luther, too, when he was appointed as a delegate to a meeting of the court of Pope Leo X in Rome, where he thought initially that he was going to finally find all of those answers that he sought after. In fact, he wrote that he had really high expectations for the trip. He says himself, once he, when he caught sight of the papal capital, when it first came into view as he was traveling there, he, he called out, Hail, Holy Rome! Just as ecstatically as any Jewish pilgrim would do catching sight for the first time of Jerusalem. And, and so he gets there, he gets to Rome, but immediately he's shocked. He's shocked by the, the corruption and the immorality and the luxurious decadence of the princes of the church. And the more Luther saw of the city, the more his reverence turned into loathing. In fact, one author uh, said of him, the city which Luther greeted as holy was a sink of iniquity. Its very priests were openly infidel and scoffed at the services they performed. The papal courtiers were men of the most shameless lives. And Luther learned the truth behind the Italian proverb that goes, if there is a hell, Rome's built over it. And he became even more depressed than ever. So he decides to at least take in a tour of the city, at least take in some of the historic sites and get his mind off of his troubles. And he comes to uh, one of the this tourist attractions called the Lateran Steps. If any of you have been to Rome or, or seen pictures of it, it's a long flight of white marble steps that had been excavated and taken from Pontius Pilate's uh, courtyard in Jerusalem and shipped to Rome and installed in a papal basilica. It's the, the set of steps that tradition says that Jesus stood atop when Pilate offered to release him, 
but the crowd instead called for his crucifixion. And previous popes had declared that any pilgrim that would, would go to the top of these steps would automatically be forgiven any of their previous sins if, if they crawled to the top of the steps, the whole flight on their knees. And he already tried everything else. So Luther started that slow crawl on his knees up the steps. But immediately he knew in his head that it wasn't right. And, and, and he gets further up and then and partway up he gets this like a flash in his head and in his heart from the Holy Spirit of a, a line from Scripture, the just shall live by faith. And, and, and he repeats that verse over and over again as he wakes his way on his knees up the steps. The just shall live by faith. The just shall live by faith. The just shall live by faith. And when he reached the top, God gave him this amazing revelation that he was forgiven by unmerited grace alone, on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ alone, and not on any good works, not on any type of self-denial or, or formulas or rituals, but purely out of love. And you know, when I was working on this message during the week and kind of searching for a title and, and really trying to imagine how Luther would feel in that moment, I remembered a kind of a, a hymn. It was first written in 1881 by Eleanor Farajan, and I want to play for you. They're going to start queuing it up back there in a little bit. But what really kind of connected the memory together is when Mike and I were at the conference, uh, and I don't remember which one it was, but spoke about the motto of the Reformation as being this Latin phrase, post tenebrous lux, after darkness light. And so this, this hymn and the, the words to it and the, and the video that you're going to see kind of reminds me of how Luther must have felt when he went from the darkness of human tradition into the light of God's word through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So just indulge me in this tiny little video. You probably know the song. Praise for springing fresh from the word. Can you imagine how that must have impacted Luther? And, and, and that happens when we come to realize, as Luther did, that the ultimate authority for the true Christian life is found in the Bible alone. Sola Scriptura. And not in the doctrines of men. And that happened to him on the top of those steps. And in that moment of God's revelation to Luther, he turned around and walked down those ancient steps. And the face of the Christian world and of Western culture was changed forever. Changed by cementing the idea that ordinary Christians could and should read the Bible for themselves in their own everyday language. That they didn't have to accept the word of centralized religious authorities at face value that they didn't have to accept traditions at face value unless they were prescribed by the word. And most importantly, that they didn't have to be told what to think. Because they were capable of thinking for themselves and for discerning the transformational truths of Scripture through the direct ministry of the Holy Spirit. And so Luther went away thoroughly disenchanted with the holy city, but not with his holy God. Because the time he spent there impacted his ministry and his leadership for the rest of his life. Because he never forgot what he saw, which was instead of faithful shepherds feeding God's sheep, he saw self-serving masters abusing the flock and hoarding up earthly treasures and impressive titles, just like happened in Jesus' day. That's why Jesus said to his followers, don't let anyone call you rabbi, for you have only one teacher and all of you are equal as brothers and sisters. And don't address anyone here on earth as father, for only God in heaven is your father. And don't let anyone call you teacher, for you have only one teacher, the Messiah, the greatest among you must be the servant. But those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And you know, when the, when the Jewish 
leaders and teachers of the law heard Jesus teaching like this, they couldn't have been more stunned because they thought they were pretty okay. They liked the structure of things the way that it was. They liked using God's word as a weapon to beat up other people. They liked using it as a prop for their ego. And like all of us, especially me, they didn't like to be corrected. Right? None of us do, right? But the truth is we all need correcting. I didn't look at my mother-in-law when I said that. We've all sinned against God. We've all sinned against each other. We've sinned against nature, and everything around us calls for our condemnation in the face of our God, a God who is not just good, but who is holy, and who is not just holy, but who is just. And that's a problem. Because humanity tends to want to justify ourselves. We want to put context around our sins and say, oh, okay, Lord, I, I broke your law, but I had a reason. Or, or, okay, Lord, I broke one of those commandments, but I've had a really tough life. And besides, you didn't see what they did to me. And we also have a tendency to think, well, well, doesn't our, our religious devotion count for anything? How about all those hours spent in church? Hours spent doing good things, hours involved in religious activities. Don't those count for something in your presence, God? Don't they enable me to say, look what I've done. I'm a good person. I deserve to go to heaven. But brothers and sisters, that is a lie straight from the pit of hell because not all good people go to heaven, only saved people go to heaven. Because the truth is thinking like the Pharisees did that they deserve heaven because of who they were or what they did is the surest sign that you don't understand the gospel or the nature of God. Romans 12, 3 says, because of the privilege God has given me, I give to each of you this warning. Do not think you are better than you really are. Be honest in your evaluation of yourselves, measuring yourself by the faith God has given you. So we really need to see God as who he is and ourselves as who we are. And if that ever really happens, then all of the other areas of life fall right into place. If we ever really believe and accept that Jesus is the full witness to divine reality, that he's the the word, the, the breath, the spirit, the voice, the, the love of God, then we can be delivered from all those lies that we habitually tell ourselves. Like when we decide that we're really all basically good people trying to do good things and live in a good society and focus on our own achievements, on what I've done. Because the truth is the gospel, the good news, always originates with God and his nature and not with us. God alone is holy. God alone is just. God alone is righteous. And God can't contradict himself. He can't violate his own nature, and that's a good thing. It would be terrifying to know that we lived in a universe and a reality that was created by an evil God, wouldn't it? Right? An omnipotent being that was morally corrupt would be a living nightmare. So it's good that God is holy and just. But it also presents that problem that I mentioned, because if God is just, what does he do with us? What does he do with me? What does a good God do with people who, like us, break his law? Does, it, does he turn his back on all of us completely? Or on the other hand, should he just give us all a pat on the head and a free ticket to heaven? Does he withhold his love and reject us? Or does he reject his own righteousness and judgment and pretend like I've never committed any sin? It's not going to happen. And the only thing that can bridge this huge chasm between these two extremes is found in Jesus Christ and in his death on the cross, because that's where the unique revelation of the fullness of God's divine nature can be seen. The only place that combines and reconciles 
God's perfect righteousness with his relentless love for us. I mean, think of it like this. God is just, so he has to condemn sin. But God is love, so he became a man in the person of Jesus Christ who lived a perfect, sinless life and goes to the cross for me where all of the justice and the wrath of God that I deserve was thrown down on the head of Jesus Christ. The wrath of God that should have fallen on me, he took on himself in the person of his one and only son. So that our hearts and our minds could be open to hear directly from God in his word. And so that we'd be delivered from the vanity and delusion of this world and all of its diseased affections. So we'll be free from the need to justify ourselves through religion. So we're not going to crave other people's approval or be moved by the pressure of the crowd. And so that we'll experience the peace and freedom of knowing that we are right with God because of what he has done. And, you know, he offers us a taste of that today here at the table. A table that really is kind of an upside-down experience because it's a table where the last are first. It's a table where the people that the world thinks of as worthless are welcome. It's a place where class and title and distinction and differences are all laid aside and a place where we have only one master, and we are all brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the host of this table, the king of our hearts, the daylight of God's love recreating the new day. Because, brothers and sisters, morning has broken. Will you pray with me? God, our Father, it is truly right and our great joy always and everywhere to give you thanks and praise, especially in this Holy Supper, Lord. Recalling that perfect sacrifice once offered on the cross by our Lord Jesus Christ. And asking you, Father, by the joy of his resurrection and in expectation of his coming again, that you unite us in your truth and love so that we can confess your name, Father, and sit together at one table. So come now, Lord, and continue your transforming work in this place, in this time, that eyes may be opened, that hearts may be radically changed by the good news of the gospel. And so, remembering now your mighty acts in Jesus Christ, we take from your creation this bread and this wine and ask you to pour out your spirit upon us and upon these your gifts, that this meal may be for us a communion with our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.